Half the Child, a novel by William J. McGee, Book Three, A Summer of Language. It's a summer of language, of reading and writing and speaking. Letters form words, words form sentences, sentences form all sorts of magical things. Life is the greatest of locks, and language the finest of keys, especially for a four-year-old. Ben and I discussed the old trope about how Eskimos possess 100 words for snow, and soon we're researching it. First, we learn the real term for Eskimo, Inuit and Yupik. Neither Ben nor I are surprised by those many indigenous names for snow. Only someone who's never seen or felt the stuff would think one word could cover it. I've taken up boxing again, so I give Ben lessons in our hotel room in Tel Aviv. Facing him on my knees, I demonstrate four basic punches. Straight jab, cross, uppercut, hook. I mention how this last is driven by kinetic energy, and Ben asks, Connecticut energy? Later, I hum the Air Force song, drilled so deeply into my brain in Texas, it'll never be dislodged. And Ben wants to know why the blue is wild, and yonder. Some language, of course, I never share with Ben. Like when a guy in the tower gripes about an NFL quarterback he perceives as cowardly. That dude's always bleeding from his mangina. And some language is complex. I'm unsure how to explain to a four-year-old the only guaranteed certainty in life is anyone who employs the phrase, I'm not racist, will immediately follow that phrase with a racist statement. My phone vibrates, and Ben asks if the call is moot. I laugh and explain many of my calls are both moot and moot. Nighttime always culminates the same way for us. First, we read together, and then as Ben snuggles in for sleep, I sing to him. Of course, the reading introduces new words, phrases, concepts. His library of books is ever-expanding, and I never throw out those he's outgrown. Pat the Bunny sits proudly alongside a child's first encyclopedia. But singing also spurs interest in language and imagery and lyricism. Songs he's heard a thousand times contain unwrapped bounty. Even Molly Malone, our favorite tune of all time. He wants to know why Dublin is a fair city, and we use Google images to retrieve photos of both cockles and mussels, which are not the same as mussels. After I buy Ben new shoes, we go online and learn that metal thing to measure your foot is called a Brannock device. When we visit Citibank in the Platinum Building in Tel Aviv, and the ATM asks which language we'll be using today, Ben pleads with me to log on in Korean. So I do, and after withdrawing the equivalent of $60, the screen tells me, <laughs> we both laugh hysterically. His new favorite joke is, I called the zoo, but the lion was busy. Of course, the first time Ben heard it, I had to explain to a child who was primarily familiar with wireless telephones why lion is a play on line, as well as what line means in this context. 
While watching the Mets, the suddenly dominant Mets, we play with new sounds heard on the recaps and highlights. Yoannis Cespedes, Jacob deGrom, Noah Syndergaard, Uris Familia. I tell Ben that, hands down, Kirk Neuenhuis seems to be his favorite. So naturally, he asks about the term, hands down. And soon we're Googling and surprised to learn it originated with horse racing. Another day I say, your right is rain. And Ben responds, rain? Why? When I play my Beatles CDs in the hotel, Ben wants to know why the show is for the benefit of Mr. Kite. Thanks to my attorneys, I learned that my son is not in fact my son. He is, quote, the infant issue of the marriage, unquote. It's a summer of language, both English and Hebrew. His four-year-old brain is a tabula rasa, and soon he's jabbering in a hybrid engru, or heblish. It's a phenomenon I later learn is called code-switching by linguists. It's a summer without Ben, and yet my son's love of language continues to touch me even from thousands of miles away. Last summer, Ben wrote his initials, a rather shaky BM, in the rear side window of Lovey during an August thunderstorm. Then he wrote DM for Daddy Mullen. Months later, when it was cold enough that frost covered the car prior to an early morning shift, I spotted those four letters re-emerging from the past, quite apparent again due to the perfect combination of light, temperature, and moisture. And I ached in lonely misery because I so missed my boy. It's a summer of language, even when language is woefully inadequate. The crying thing was scaring me. Driving on the Jackie Robinson Parkway, watching a Mets game, at night in bed, even at work, it was entering a critical phase. I kept willing myself to make it stop. Eventually, after my first trip to Tel Aviv, I was successful. What I don't know is that the respite was temporary. Spending time with Ben has changed how I view just about everything. Trees, birds, music, orange juice, sink stoppers, the presidency, sidewalk cracks, pencils, war, twigs, death, words. I call it my squirrel theory. Until I was about five, I was fascinated by squirrels. I'd sit at our living room window, watching these odd furry creatures running, climbing, chasing, eating. And just where were all those nuts coming from, anyway? Yet, after age five, squirrels disappeared, not just from Queens, but entirely, until Ben started toddling, and they reappeared. We brought peanuts to the park, and I observed squirrels again. I think of this while supposedly watching airplanes. Once more, I call Annabelle, my former psychology professor. Once more, she listens patiently while I rant. I fear I'm sounding paranoid, describing how Judge Westfall ignores my lawyer, 
but makes small talk and chit-chat with the opposing attorney. But this time something's different. I'm sensing she's had enough of me. I stop. Listen, I'm really sorry. About what, Mike? Going on and on. I mean, it's been tough, you know. I feel like sometimes Annabelle's voice seems at once clearer, as though the connection has improved. I have to be honest with you, Mike. I wouldn't be truthful if I said otherwise. Yes. I'm quite worried. I bit my lip. Worried? About Ben? No, about you. So we've spent nearly a year in the Israeli phase. When Judge Westfall lectured me on this excellent opportunity, she failed to mention how I would afford ten round-trip airfares and hotel stays during the ten-month period. My LL fund soon ran dry, even when I supplemented it with additional student loan money for courses I'm not taking. So I play with fire by bumming cockpit jump seat rides with U.S. airlines operating to Tel Aviv, which now is just American, Delta, and United. Technically, we're only supposed to flash our ID when traveling on government business, but most airlines won't turn away FAA employees. The usual routine is I sit in the cockpit for takeoff, answering any crew questions about air traffic control. When we're at altitude, they usually suggest I move to an empty seat in the cabin. It's don't ask, don't tell, and I fear the day Bob M. summons me to discuss how I'm using my government ID as a de facto credit card. As for Israel, I want to like it more, but I can't. Of course, it's a beautiful locale, and nicer than many other places, but I feel toward Israel the way I feel toward Indiana and the courthouse and her parents' home. They all remind me of the sheer misery of separation. For a while, we tried. Without discussing it, somehow we all agreed to reboot on my first visit. Instead of picking up Ben in a public place, I was invited to their small house in a suburb called Batyam. I took the rail line and found the address and was asked in. After Ben jumped into my arms at the front door, she and I smiled at each other, and Casper formally introduced himself. Ben excitedly showed me his room, complete with Disney Cars poster, and then his mother took him to get changed. Casper and I were alone in the kitchen, and he offered me limonana, a local lemonade, and nervously showed me photos of his four children and even his parents in Bulgaria. I was shocked to learn Ben was sleeping in his son's room. While she was still upstairs, I spoke very evenly, just as I rehearsed to myself, without a trace of anger or machismo. Casper, you seem like a nice guy. Hopefully, we'll all get along. But I just want to say, my son will be living with you now. And if you ever hurt him in any way, well, I'll kill you. He stared at me, perhaps wondering if this was American humor. Then he nodded. Ah, you see, I am a father as well, so I appreciate your thoughts. Good. Ben came down, and I thanked them for the lemonade, and he and I set out by rail for Hotel Shalom near the beach. 
after that night, we met at the train station. And so, it's Indiana again, only without car rentals and waitresses who draw crucifixes on the checks. In fact, considering it's probably the world's most famous state built on a religion, Israel seems quite secular. I've seen far more Hasidim in Brooklyn than in Bat Yam, which we learn means daughter of the sea. I visit Ben's day school, and his empathic teacher tells me Ben is frustrated not knowing Hebrew. I point out he seems to learn quickly, but she frowns and says not to the other children. She explains Ben misses his father very much. I swallow hard and softly ask how she knows this. She replies, because he told me when he was crying. We go to parks, walk the streets, ride the trains. Ben's palate expands a bit. He tries schnitzel and even couscous. The falafel vendors are ubiquitous, but he won't sample, though he soon loves the pastries known as barekas, especially with spinach. When I order shawarma, he picks the meat out of my pita. By evening, we're back at Hotel Shalom, which, of course, means both hello and goodbye. Eventually, I meet Ben's friends, Amit and Omer, and we take them to the beach. On the micro level, there's nothing wrong with the visits, but it's not parenting. Ben has a life here, and I drop in monthly with gifts and trembo marshmallow treats. Despite my seniority, I can't take off every holiday I like, so I wound up working Christmas Day. On Boxing Day, I flew to Tel Aviv to spend a belated holiday with Ben at Hotel Shalom. My checked bag was filled with gifts from my family and me. Of course, I still embrace secular humanism, but my reasoning for celebrating, backed by the courts for once, is that Ben spends Jewish holidays with his mother's family and Christian holidays with his father's family. Ben, of course, is eager to celebrate as many holidays as possible, particularly when they're celebrated with gifts. By winter, these trips completely tire me, physically and emotionally, and I can't wait until Ben returns home, or what I certainly consider home. I worry that I'm sinking further into what exactly? An existence I fear and refuse to acknowledge, a solitary life as a single man intersecting with Ben's world, but not shaping it. She still doesn't pack a knapsack for him, so I travel overseas with clothes, books, toys, and toiletries for my son. On the second pickup at the station, she forgot to pack dog. On the third visit, she simply shrugged when I asked. On the fourth visit, she said dog went missing, and by the fifth, the search had been called off. Ben stared at the tiled floor as I calmly peppered her with questions. The next day I texted Katie about dog, and she responded, What fresh hell is this? Still, I absolutely refused to believe she would do something like this intentionally. Since we first separated, she developed a phobia about her clothes and toys for Ben not leaving her house. Ben and I even joke about him wearing daddy's underwear and mommy's underwear. But it couldn't possibly manifest like this. 
I refuse to believe she eliminated Dog to keep him from me. By March, even Ben is tiring of my visits. Not of me, thankfully, but the hotels and restaurants. He asks when I'm moving to Israel. And now I face a horrible scenario. It's the Saturday night before I depart, and Ben's behavior is absolutely wicked. He throws a kebab at me during dinner and pulls his hand away from mine while boarding the train. Back in the room, he calls me stupid. I dislike being a disciplinarian, even under the best of circumstances, and I hate having to use our precious hours for punishment. Even so, the alternative of doing nothing is much worse. And above all else, I'm his father. So Ben discovers even hotels have time-out corners, and I scroll online while he stews near the curtains. By bedtime, he's sweeter than ever and hugs me tightly. Sam emails us the new baby is named Henry, and Ben asks why. I falter a bit. Sometimes people have reasons to pick names, and sometimes they just like certain names. I email back using the shoddy hotel Wi-Fi, and Sam explains that Henry was Deborah's dad, who recently died. Ben considers this. Then he says, So Deborah has a new daddy. For me, finding the right words becomes increasingly harder. Like when I hitched a U-Haul trailer from College Point onto the back of the wagon and cleared uh, all of my belongings from the stop-and-store in Elmhurst and packed up all our stuff from Kevin's apartment. The timing was good. J-Law has become the longest relationship of Kevin's life, even longer than his marriage. In fact, we've all stopped calling her J-Law. Her name is Nicole. And although Kevin proved to be the finest of brothers keepers, by last fall, we both knew it was time to move on. Particularly after I stumbled to the bathroom in my boxers and encountered Nicole stumbling out in bra and panties. A few weeks before, without any notice, my mother suddenly told me Mr. Hannity, just five doors down from our family's row house, was fleeing to Florida and would rent his narrow three-bedroom place to me for $1,500 a month, scads less than the market price. A small backyard for Ben's little tyke's car, and best of all, a room of his own. Hillary was ecstatic, instantly filing papers with the court. Mr. Mullen's new living arrangements not only offer space and security, but proximity to Ben's extended paternal family. It also means I grocery shop for my mother now when shopping for myself, so we don't worry about her schlepping milk and juice. After Kevin and I loaded Ben's toddler bed onto the wagon's luggage rack, words failed me yet again. I turned to Kevin and said nothing. He smiled and, unusual for him, gave me a hug. Thanks for taking pity on your loser brother, I blurted out when Kevin wouldn't play along. You're anything but a loser, man. I've been watching you all this time with Ben. He's the luckiest kid in the world. Hillary mails me a motion Ben's mother filed, suggesting a visitation schedule. But something's wrong here. 
The cover page is stamped in red ink, invalid. And now I see why. The fruit of the marriage has been repeatedly and erroneously referred to as Benjamin Cohen Muller, not once, but in 17 separate references. Hillary stapled a copy of Ben's birth certificate, highlighting my son's correct hyphenless name in yellow ink. To be clear, I would have been willing to discuss hyphenating Ben's name, but upon his birth it never came up. Her lawyer is framing my opposition as some sort of patriarchy, but my lawyer counters this is an attempt to legally marginalize the father. What I don't know is this ridiculous and illegal effort to change Ben's name will continue for years. I'll constantly need to correct teachers, principals, and coaches, and whenever I protest, I'll be laughed at as an obsessive-compulsive oddball. He's even angrier over punctuation. Eventually, she'll assert that a mother's maiden name as a middle name is always assumed to have a hyphen, and I'll respond, You mean like that dark day when President Fitzgerald Kennedy was killed? For now, the effort has failed, and the entire motion will have to be refiled. Back in February, I told Annabelle how confused Ben was on many of our phone calls, because he'd be in bed in the dark in Israel, and I'd be eating lunch in New York. Or he'd be having breakfast, and I'd be sitting up after midnight. Annabelle devised a brilliant solution to help Ben understand. On my next trip, I unwrapped two special packages. One was a large flashlight, and the other a deflated beach ball we took turns blowing up, Daddy providing much more hot air than Benji. When the ball was fully inflated, Ben was delighted to discover a globe. I turned off the lamp, and together we pointed the flashlight directly at Tel Aviv, and then found New York City on the dark side. Ben I slowly rotated the ball while Ben held the flashlight steady, and Israel faded into darkness as the sun rose over Montauk. After I returned home, I called Ben, and he asked me if I could see the giant flashlight from my airplane. She's here in New York, but my son remains in Israel. It's a world upside down. We're in a conference room in the courthouse in Jamaica, so Hillary and I can respond to an order to show cause filed by her new attorney. Three summers, three attorneys for her, and I can only imagine the backstories. The latest is a sickly-looking guy with a bandage on his forehead, and he's running down a list of reasons Michael Patrick Mullen has issues with anger, and therefore potentially with violence. Meanwhile, he's the one looking like a victim of violence. This is a theme that has returned with increasing frequency over the past year, and I admit it confuses me. I've never been accused of excessive anger, and I've certainly never been accused of unjustified violence during my marriage or at any other time in my life. Why these false accusations? And why now? Hillary says nothing, and I shake my head repeatedly. Of course, if I don't object, I'll be acquiescing. But if I do object, I'm putting that infamous temper on display. The charges are read. Isn't it true I fired assault weapons? 
Yes, while serving in the military, though there's a difference between assault weapons and assault rifles. And so, and engaged in pugilism? Yes, again, while serving in the military. Does New York State not support our troops? And I've used foul language in front of the defendant, the defendant's attorney, even the child himself, and I once yelled at the child, and I once yelled at a television when the New York Mets lost a playoff game. I decide to diffuse this insanity with levity by asking for a jury of my peers, comprised entirely of National League fans from Flushing. But her attorney taps his bandaged forehead, frowning rather than grinning. Finally, he drops the big one. Isn't it also true I threatened the life of the child's stepfather in Israel last year? I let out a groan and tell Hillary this is absurd. But the paperwork is filed with Judge Westfall, who promptly agrees Mr. Mullen would benefit from anger management counseling, and so orders. The truth is dawning on me rather slowly. I'm on the subway, returning from my accountant's office, where her assistant itemized expenses for a possible bankruptcy filing, which seems inevitable now. At 59th Street, I'm again contemplating life without Ben. But other forms of loneliness are crowding these long spells as well. After the Velveeta Smith debacle, I'll admit I became apprehensive about dating. Then recently, a brilliant idea hit. Why not follow up with someone I already know? Of course, human beings can't be freeze-dried and thawed out upon demand, but still. The other night, I looked up FAA contact information for Megan, that controller from Providence I'd spent several happy days with in Oklahoma City. I won't deny that while I'm sending off an email, I recalled that invitation upstairs at the Days Inn. Happily, she responded, and to my sheer delight, she wrote, Great to hear from you, Mike. We lob messages back and forth until finally I broach getting together. I could drive there, or any chance of you visiting New York City? By Queens Plaza, she responds. As luck would have it, Megan will be in Manhattan next month. She plans to visit old friends with her husband. It will be a fun road trip for their baby daughter. I sigh and wish her well. I'd almost forgotten publicly ostracizing Bob M. for griping about babysitting his own kids. Now my boss has asked me for a ride, rampside, out among the airplanes, in his government-issued Jeep Patriot. All those familiar voices from the tower tumble forth from the low-hanging radio as we cross two active taxiways and angle into a sweet location for plane spotting. He stares out the window as he speaks. I don't like you, he says. I nod and don't respond. And you sure don't like me. Again, I say nothing. But I'm having one honest conversation with you. Then you're on your own. I wait. It's his theater, so why should I fumble for lines? I'm going to play this existentially and not show emotion. You remember in the service, no ranks, no bullshit, completely off the record? Sure, I tell the dashboard. You say it's off the record, only you can't unremember anything. I'm looking away, 
but I sense Bob M. smiling. We both watch a U.S. Airways 737 rumble by. Soon that livery will be retired, thanks to the latest merger, as that long list of dead airlines grows longer. And then American capitalists will secure their ultimate victory, and all airlines will merge into one. Like in the old USSR. Some guys were born to do this job, he says. Um, gals, too. I mean, they're just born with perfect skill sets. But those guys... They're usually just brilliant at talking to aircraft. Nothing else in life. When they're not working, they watch Cartoon Network marathons. Despite my attitude, he actually has my interest. I've long believed the same. Then there's guys like you, smart about the job, but also smart in other ways, and you go in different directions. I look at the huge U.S. Naval Academy ring. When I was on hiatus from college and taking antidepressants, Bob M. was throwing his white hat into the Maryland sky in front of the president. He looks at me. I've been over your record three times. Talk about a golden boy. I read every military fitness report. Christ, that guy in Keflavik sounds like he was wet when he, when he wrote it. Finest senior airman ever. Which also raises something else, namely why you had a four-year degree and you were enlisted? How come you never applied for officer training school? Now I stare at his ring. I have trouble respecting authority. Bob M. sighs. Look, I've even asked some older guys. Everybody says the same thing. No one ever fucked up his career so quickly. It's incredible. If your file was just the last two years, you'd be out on your ass by now. It's the early stuff. Commendations, perfect reviews. You're still running off those fumes. And mister, the clock is ticking. I consider remarking about mixing fumes metaphors with clock metaphors, but for once I restrain myself. Lately it's all reprimands and write-ups. You pissed away all that goodwill. Forget busting my balls. That's your mulligan. You had people up the chain looking at you. You know, for years... You think every knucklehead up there gets government grants to go study psychology? Of all damn things, Jesus. Then you can't even pass a three-credit class at NYU. All the rabbis you have. Had. Fucking had. People in the region making plans for you. Brand new job carved out of nothing. With this budget. Twice a year, Congress shuts us down, but Mullen's getting a brand new job. Hell, a guy on New Jersey Avenue knew you by name. This guy's at DOT headquarters, and he knows Michael at little old La Garbage. I'm there for a meeting, and he mentions you. Incredible. And you pissed on him. You piss on everybody. I'll be damned if I can figure out. His phone beeps, and he quickly reads a text message. Now I speak. You identified the timeline two years ago. You know why. Bob M's voice softens. Sure, and in case we forget, you always remind us. My head snaps, meaning what? Meaning, well, maybe you like this stuff. I don't mean what's happening, I mean talking about it. You talk way too much. Reminds me of a professor I had, this admiral. Guy was shot down, spent time at, in the Hanoi Hilton. I set my jaw 
and say nothing. Let him fill the void. Look, you're not the first divorced guy. I'm not unsympathetic. If you didn't have such a hard-on for me, we could have talked. Work stuff out. But you don't like officers. Mr. Friend of the Working Man. That's clear. Even though I ignore a lot of shit. Like, whenever you decide it's bring Mike Mullen's kid to work day. The idling engine revs. Your annual physical used to be a cakewalk. Now you've been flagged, right? Big red flag. Hypertension. 50 milligrams or something. Losartan? 36, and now you're flagged for a stroke risk. That's just for... Doesn't matter. That's how the agency looks at it. It's all about risk. He taps the dashboard. I'm giving free advice. Knowing you, you'll tell yourself I'm an asshole. But you, my friend, don't suffer fools well. You're a bright guy, but you don't deal well with people who aren't bright. And, mister, you act like you spend your entire day at a fool's convention. Not a good trait, especially for an enlisted man. It's a little snobbish. I stare out the passenger window, because on some level, I fear he's right. He talks into my left ear the way I spoke into Father Dinnigan's in the confessional as a child. You could play this whole management sucks thing, but I'm responsible for what happens out here. His hand sweeps the runway complex and the many planes creeping on taxiways. So far, it's been chicken shit stuff with you. The worst would have been dented horizontal stabilizers. Fuck the airlines, they got insurance, right? Well, I'm not going to let you do real damage. Now my emotion comes out. I hate people don't take this job seriously. You think that's me? I took an oath. Bob M. points to a Delta 737 easing onto runway 22. Right there, 150 strangers. Times how many a shift? Parents, kids, babies, they're cattle in the back of a truck. Strangers control them like you when you're up there. I'm going to say something you won't like, but I'm going to say it. you got to pretend your kid's on every plane. That's the only way I know to get through to you. Pretend it's your kid in the air. I breathe heavily through my nose, like when I boxed in Dover, and suddenly I see my arm move as if on its own. It moves towards him. My hand is moving because I find I can't argue with his logic. He shakes my hand. We better get back. Once parked in his tower manager spot, I notice not one, but two sets of colorful kitty golf clubs in the back seat.